This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the Summer Tour Edition of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. And my guest today is a self-described outlaw who happens to be one of the most talented songwriters and performers in Nashville. Margot Price grew up in the small town of Alito, Illinois, a rural farming community that would shape her as a person and an artist. In 2016, she burst onto the Americana scene with a soulful, deeply personal album called Midwest Farmer's Daughter. The songs have a timeless quality, especially in Price's old-school country voice, but they also tell stories of loss, heartbreak, and the disappearing American dream. Today on the show, Margot talks about her grandmother's cooking, rolling into Nashville with all her possessions packed on a flatbed trailer, and how she went from playing gigs at dive bars to singing with Loretta Lynn. She also talks about her new memoir, Maybe We'll Make It, which is coming out this fall from the University of Texas Press and becoming the first female artist to sit on the board of Farm Aid. All that and more this week on a very special Biscuits and Jam. Margot Price, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thank you for having me. Where am I reaching you right now? I just got back to my home outside of Nashville. I've been on tour last, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks. I've been out in California with Chris Stapleton, and now I'm just back home. Wow. So a little downtime is going to be a welcome thing. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, Margo, you grew up in a small town in Illinois, not too far from the Mississippi River, I believe, Tell me a little bit about your hometown. Oh, my hometown. Well, it's a, a small town called Alito, and it's got about 3,000-some people there. And my folks kind of lived outside of that town. And the actual closest little town, I don't even know if it was called a town, but Hamlet was the sign that read that was about a mile from my house, and it said population 34. <laughs> So it was it was rural to say the least. There was not that much to do there besides try not to get in trouble. But I try to go back and visit like once a year. There is something that's kind of special about it because it's just kind of still seems so untouched by the rest of the world. The Midwest is like that. It just takes so long for everything to get there. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. Yes, in some ways. Do you still have a lot of family back there? My folks still have a house there. And yeah, I have two grandmothers and some aunts and uncles and cousins that live there. So there's still some family gatherings that you make it back for? It's been a minute with just the way that COVID was, but I went back for Christmas and I'm going to try to get there this year with my kids. We like to go up and just go fishing and go ride around on like the gator. I let my kid drive the gator last year and he was 
like 10 years old. <laughs> I'm like, this is the way you will learn to drive young <laughs> on farm equipment. <laughs> and now that's probably all he wants to do is drive that thing around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what about back in the day when you were growing up, what did the big family gatherings look like? It sounded like you had quite a few family members there and probably some cousins and were they a big deal for y'all? Both of my parents, there were five children on each side of their families and they were both the middle. They were both the third born and they graduated the same year. They were like high school sweethearts and kind of all American family in a lot of ways. Family gatherings on my dad's side was lots of uncles, like watching football and smoking cowboy killers in the basement. <laughs> you know, that was the 80s. So it was like the way that it was. And a lot of light beer was consumed. And then my mom's side, they had a, a love for other things, I guess, like they played tennis and my grandfather was a chiropractor and he was really sweet. He looked after all of us. I got into trouble with my cousins. I had one cousin in particular who... I actually write about in um, my upcoming memoir, she convinced me to move to Nashville and she was full of like the worst ideas. She just, <laughs> she was, she was always in the black sheep. Yeah. Yeah. She made me look good. So that was the, maybe why I kept her around, but uh, we got into a lot of trouble. She convinced me to move to Nashville when I was about 20. So I dropped out of college and moved here to pursue the dream. Yeah. And I want to get to that. I want to talk about the book as well. But before we do that, I got to ask you just if there was a cook in the family or someone that was kind of famous for their cooking, was there an aunt or a grandmother or or your mom? Yes. My grandmother, well, both of my grandmothers loved to cook and my mom worked really hard. My mom was a school teacher. And so after school, we would go to my grandmother's and she would make us dinner nearly every single night. Her name's Patricia Louise. And she just was the glue that like kind of held everybody together. And she helped my mom take us a lot of places and stuff and get emotional because she's actually, she's having surgery this Thursday, but she was just always there, always cooking for us, always taking care of us and very musical, you know, that side of the family, they all sang. And she drove me to a lot of my piano lessons and stuff. And then on the other side of the family, my grandmother, Mary Price, she just, she loved to cook and entertain. And they had a farm up until I was about three, but she was just very hardworking woman. And they always had like a pork roast going or something in the kitchen and cornbread and, and lots of meals and just lots of people gathered around and, and having a good time. <laughs> it sounds kind of Southern to me. <laughs> it was, but it was Midwest, but yeah. <laughs> so Margo, you grew up going to the Lutheran church, I believe. I mean, was that big a big part of your childhood? And I'm also wondering if that was where you maybe started to learn to sing. We went to the Lutheran church for the beginning of my life. And it was like, from what I understand, it's like a bit Catholic because we did lots of sinning. So <laughs> lots of repenting. <laughs> We did communion every week and I was an acolyte, wear the robes and light the candles and help pass out the wafers and getting into the communion wine and whatnot. And then after a while, our pastor, he passed away and we ended up going to, on my father's side, they were Presbyterian. So I got confirmed as a Presbyterian 
we went to church. Like I said, we did get confirmed and I did acolyte and I did sing lots of hymns and definitely was where some of my love for music began was, was in church, but they didn't go every single Sunday. We would go like maybe once a month, twice a month. And so there was always like a, a guilt about that. We were like the bad family. <laughs> it was hanging out in the balcony playing hangman or something. On well, I'm very familiar with that sneaking into the back of the church thing. We we did plenty of that in Memphis. I'm very familiar with that. <laughs> oh man, you know, I have always wanted to go to Al Green's church in Memphis. Have you been? I have been, and it is a must do. That's always been on my bucket list. So. I got to make my way to Memphis and, and do that. I don't know if he's still doing it, but he probably won't be doing it much longer if he is. So I, I think I know. <laughs> you need to go do that. Incredible. So Margo, let's talk about your book. You have a memoir coming out this fall with University of Texas Press. It's called Maybe We'll Make It. And you're not even 40 yet, but <laughs> it does seem like you've lived several lifetimes from reading the book. Why did you decide to tell this story now? Well, I I am a huge fan of reading music memoirs myself. It's like a large piece of my reading as an adult has been that, and they've been really inspiring to me while I was coming up. But I think reading Patti Smith's Just Kids was like the tipping point. But I was like, I want to write about the struggle that I went through. And I wanted to write about all of those times before I forgot the stories. <laughs> it started as almost an exercise in therapy because I got pregnant with my daughter, Ramona, and I just needed to work in some capacity. And I came off the road from a time of heavy, heavy, heavy touring. And I did not know what to do with myself. So while my son was in school, I would just go every single day to this little cafe in East Nashville that has changed names now. But I would go there every day and write and write and write. And then I just like tweeted that I was writing a book. And then Jessica Hopper reached out from the University of Texas Press and she was like, can I read it? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> I was very worried about anyone reading it. So I was just really self-conscious about it. And then they were like, this is amazing. We would love to help you bring this to fruition. And so over the course of a few years, they helped me mold it into what it is now. Well, it's wonderful and it's beautifully written and it's just got a lot of layers to it. And I want to ask about how you kind of start out the book and talking about the farm and the loss of the farm. I mean, your first album was called Midwest Farmer's Daughter. And a lot of that is about how your family lost the farm when you were really young. Why does that farm loom so large for you? I think because it was just a symbol of the loss of the American dream and how you could put in your blood, your sweat and tears and generations of hard work into something and then just kind of have it slip through your hands. And seeing how that affected my family, it was difficult to see. And it was, I don't know, it was almost like a vendetta to like just pay a 
homage to it in some way that it wasn't like for lack of their trying and it wasn't that they didn't work hard enough. It's just that you sometimes get screwed by life and especially by greed and money and power. And my family's white. (laughs) Right. So it's like, there's so many other people that have a story to tell about how they have kind of been dealt a bad hand. Well, it's a powerful story and it led to a really powerful album and now kind of lays the groundwork for this book. And it just seems like a very deeply personal thing for you. You know, there's another part of the book where you're talking about your grandparents' farmhouse. And there's a great line in there where you say, it's not that the house was big, but the love inside it was. And I thought that was a beautiful line. Tell me a little bit about that house and what you meant by that. Some of my first memories were there. It seemed like, from my perspective at the time, that they had it all together and that was just going to be that way. And so when that upheaval happened and I saw my grandmother packing up her things, that was the moment when I kind of came online, you know, (laughs) every year we got together for Christmas in there. So they moved to a very small home on the fringes of Alito. And my grandpa, I just remember him sitting kind of at the kitchen and just staring out the window and looking at all these fields and the, you know, all the farmland was like still there, but they had to go kind of like work these really difficult backbreaking jobs in their fifties. So they had this really small house that they moved into and they actually were raising my uncle's children as well. So they had five people in this tiny little house, but every year they got together for Christmas and they gave everybody cards with money and they still cooked the pork roast in the tiny little kitchen. And, you know, it was like, there was nowhere for anybody to sit. We were all just sitting on the couches covered in plastic and watching football. And, you know, it was like, we were all still there together. (laughs) Right. Which is what matters the most, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so you left all that behind. You left the small town. You moved to Nashville and you said you were, what, 19, 20 years old. There's a moment in the book where you talk about that and you said when you drove into Nashville for the first time, it was like something out of the Beverly Hillbillies with, you know, everything that was like stacked up on the back of the car or the flatbed. Tell me about that moment, what that was like for y'all driving into town. (laughs) Well, there was like a little bit of a sting in this humiliation because they had just done the same thing to take me down to the college in Chicago and it just didn't work out. And so then it was like, all right, let's put everything on the flatbed trailer again. And my dad literally had bungees and like tarps. And there was just this kid's bed and these ratty old couches. And there was a lot of, okay, I don't know what you're doing, but I guess we'll just help you cart your shit down the interstate. My parents just kind of left me there and it was like, all right, well, good luck. And I immediately like wrecked my car and couldn't find a job and was just, I don't know, just floundering, but it was so exciting. I immediately started going out to all these open mics, just trying to figure out how I was going to like insert myself into the city. It was exciting, but it was definitely like, oh shit, what did I do? Well, I want to ask you about those open mics and some of those clubs and kind of dives 
that you played in. When you look back at that time, was there a favorite spot to play that was like that before you were playing at the Ryman? Yeah. (laughs) That's what I did is I literally sat down. I went and picked up a copy of this paper that was called All the Rage. It was like a little tiny pocket-sized thing. And I was like, looked at all the clubs. I went and checked all of them out. And I wrote down a list and was like, I'm going to play all these clubs. And the Ryman was definitely like kind of at the end but i started going out to this place that was called the hall of fame lounge it was a hotel bar but i could just go up they would let anybody play and so you were getting a sampler of all kinds of writing in nashville what drew me to the place was like people were like oh townsman's aunt used to hang out here you know towns was in here and another time neil young came in and my friend got to hang with neil young but you were getting the best and the worst because it was right on music bro so it was in a best western and the whole place was kind of decorated like cracker barrel you know like (laughs) just like antlers and it had charm it had wood paneling and it was just it was really cool place but it was a lot of older people there so like i was 20 and i'd say that the target audience or like clientele there was probably 40 to 65 but I made friends with some of these like old timer people and they would buy me beers. (laughs) Give me tips. Give me songwriting tips. And I know you love the uh, five spot too in East Nashville. You've played there a bunch, right? Oh yeah. Spent thousands of dollars there just opening bar tabs. And I mean, I met half my band there. I owe a lot to the five spot and just East Nashville in general. It's easy to get kind of bitter when you've been somewhere for, I've been here for 19 years now. And so I feel like I have grown the right to be able to hate it and pick at it, you know? And complain about the lack of parking and... (laughs) Yeah, complain about all the things that changed when I came here 20 years ago and started the gentrification. But I got such a sweet spot for that time. And that, I mean, there were just so many cool bands coming through and so many people. I saw Shovels and Rope play there. When they were just first taken off, I remember seeing Jason Isbell play there. Cool people were just coming by and, and playing sets. And then there was so many like amazing underground bands and people that were unknown, but that were just full of talent. I'll be back with more from Margot Price after the break. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and I'm talking with Margot Price. You know, Margot, you talk in the book about how you grew up around hunting and fishing. And it sounds like you still love the outdoors and that it's kind of an escape for you. And I wonder if it's still kind of an escape from Nashville sometimes, or if you still do that. You know, we lived in all over Nashville for about 15 years and I guess about four and a half years ago, five years ago, losing track of time during the pandemic. But we moved out to the country and we moved out to just a little town that is 3000 people. And it's kind of just like my hometown. There's one stoplight and like a Piggly Wiggly and a dollar store. But I got up this morning and I 
went for a two mile hike with my dogs in the woods. And I feel like, especially being on tour and being in airports and being in big cities and being in all these places. And when I come back home, I have kind of a place that I can escape and sit outside and bird watch, honestly. I'm getting into bird watching. Well, we can <laughs> geek out over that some other time. I, I love that myself. <laughs> okay, good. I mean, it's not very outlaw of me, but it's soothing. <laughs> so, Margot, the book is dedicated to your son, Ezra, who you lost to a heart condition when he was just two weeks old. And you've been very open about telling that story starting with your first album. I'm wondering if you hear from fans who feel like you've helped them in some way. I think that one of the only good things that comes out of a great loss is the connection that you can have with other people who've experienced great loss. And that can come in many different ways. Of course, I have bonded with parents who are in the unfortunate space that I'm in when you lose a child. And that has been cathartic to talk to other parents and just to kind of know that there are people that understand just how bad it feels. But there's other people who talk to me too about, you know, like losing their parents very young or just any difficult thing that you go through. And I think that really gave me a greater understanding of the human condition and what we're all going through after you've experienced something really tragic like that. So definitely, I think with fans, there is a shared grief and when you can like commiserate with other people, it makes it a little bit easier to get through. Well, and I wonder if it was also cathartic for you just writing this book. Oh, for sure. I think that's what has drawn me to just writing and creating my whole life is feeling misunderstood or feeling lonely or just needing to process what's going on. I mean, we're, we're literally all just thrown into this existence. Like none of us asked to be here. And then, you know, you go through things and you're just trying to constantly make sense of it. And definitely writing songs and just writing this book has been a way for me to cope <laughs> And I guess that's the hope is that it will reach other people and make them feel less alone, as cliche as that sounds. Yeah. I want to ask you about your last album, That's How Rumors Get Started, which came out in the summer of 2020. I'm sure you had a big tour planned and all sorts of plans around that record. What was that like for you? to work on something like that for probably a couple of years and then not be able to tour? Oh, honestly, it just felt like the cosmic joke that is my life. <laughs> I always said that if my career ever did take off, that the world would end. And like, <laughs> lo and behold, it just seemed like it did. I was really upset about it. And I have not done a headlining tour since 2018. My career took off. And then I kind of went out on a limb. I took a chance kind of putting out a slightly political record and maybe a genre that hasn't always been open to hearing about women's thoughts and ideas on the world. And then I have got pregnant 
And then COVID hit and we were planning on going back to South by Southwest. And that was what kind of launched my whole career in the beginning was me going to South by Southwest. And then I got booked at SNL through that, literally through playing at South by Southwest. So when all that started to happen, definitely kind of went into a panic mode because I had missed being out there after giving birth to my daughter. So Again, I kind of started uh, just self-medicating and drinking too much. And lo and behold, the pandemic totally expedited my quitting drinking and my getting sober. So maybe I have COVID to thank. (laughs) (laughs) In some weird way, yes. Totally, yeah. Well, so there's a great song on that album that I love called Hey Child. And it sounds like you're singing to someone who's going through a tough time. And there's a line where you say, you've got so many better things to do. What kind of space were you in when you wrote that song? Because this is pre-pandemic that you're working on this. I mean, this probably goes back to 2017 or something, right? So the crazy thing about that song and how it ended up on that record is that Sturgill produced the album, Sturgill Simpson. And we've been friends for a really long time. But my husband met Sturgill working at a grocery store in like 2011. And so we were playing shows with him back when his band was Sunday Valley. And my band was Buffalo Clover. And that was like my closer song in like 2012. Oh, wow. Yeah. My husband and I wrote that song back then. And we were writing it kind of to our friends at the time, but we were also writing it to ourselves because we had just lost our son and we were both drinking and we were not in a good headspace and our careers were not anywhere. And it was just like the group of people that we were running with at the time, we were all partying so hard. We were partying like we were rock stars, but things were not going well for anybody. So it was weird. That song was like kind of to, to ourselves. And Sturgill was like, have you ever thought about re-recording that? No one's heard that song. It's a really good song. And it was like, we were into the Rolling Stones and Southern like rock that they were doing at the time. And so that was just like us trying to be Keith and Mick and Sturgill resurrecting it and making me love it again. love hearing that story. Well, thank you, Sturgill, for bringing that back around and getting it on the album. It's such a great song. Thank him for lots of stuff. He's just like, (laughs) I I appreciate that he's out there and that he has championed me too, because we found kinship in our outsiderness. (laughs) Well, speaking of collaborations, I've just got to ask you about the collaboration that you did with Loretta Lynn. I mean, you've met and collaborated with a lot of Nashville legends over the years, but then there's Loretta Lynn. You recorded a song called Once on the Way with her for her 50th 
solo record. What was that experience like for you? I mean, she's obviously a massive influence on me. You can look at the title of my first album and and know that that's like a nod to her. She's meant a lot to me since the moment that I heard her, but I met her, I guess, for the first time in 2016, 2017. And I was just like immediately like she was just family or something. And she's also lost a child. And her being there and being able to see that and see that she was a woman who already had children and she made it after having children, like it gave me kind of a permission to go on and keep doing it. I know that sounds silly, but when I got pregnant for the first time, I just remember a lot of people asking me if I was going to hang it up, you know? So when she called me to do that, that was surreal. It was like, of course I will. And she also called me when I was pregnant with my daughter and I was feeling so scared. And I just thought that it was going to like put my career to a complete halt. I had all these fears, you know, that were not even real, but she was like, oh, you're going to be wonderful. You should just have 10 more babies and you can use Lynn as the middle name if it's a boy or a girl. So Ramona, my daughter, her her middle name is Lynn. And, you know, it's oh. because Loretta gave us the blessing to do it. Wow. What a great story. I mean, to have one on the way, literally, when Loretta Lynn calls you about doing that song. I know. I was like, well, it's okay because I performed so pregnant at her celebration and Jack White and I got to sing Portland, Oregon, but I was just like, I couldn't even put my, my arms around my stomach. I was like comedically big. I think Jack gave a toast like after that show and he's like, and congrats to Margo who's 14 months pregnant or something. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like I was. Uh, That's great. So Margo, it came out last year that you had joined the board of Farm Aid which I think makes you the first female artist to hold that position, unbelievably. What are some things that you hope to achieve with that organization? Oh my goodness. Well, I feel like they've been ahead of the curve for a long time as far as some really pressing issues that we need to be dealing with right now. And obviously climate change and just food equality, food justice is high up there and things that I think that our country needs to be working on. Childhood obesity, we've got just obesity in general. These are things that are all connected to farms and food. And Farm Aid is really working hard. They are getting grants all the time and they are dispersing them to farmers of color who haven't always been first in line for a lot of these bailouts and these things that come along to help farmers. A lot of times it's sad, but it's true that goes, it goes to white farmers. So they're making incredible uh, leaps and bounds. They've, you know, just got like bigger grants than they ever have ever. I'm just really excited about even making the lineup of the festival more diverse. Um, Last year we had Alison Russell and Betty LaFette, and I think it's just going to keep growing and you know Brittany Howard's played it there's been so many incredible musicians that have played it over the years and I'm just excited to be in there and continue on a a tradition of heroes Neil and Willie I've looked up to for forever and a big piece of it was because they were out there doing work for farming 
Well, I know they're excited to have you on that board, and I look forward to seeing what y'all do in the near future. Thank you. So, Margo, I usually ask a last question, what does it mean to you to be Southern? But I'm not going to ask you that question. But I will ask you, what does it mean to you to be a farmer's daughter? I love that. I actually love both questions. And I know I'm not really qualified to answer the first. But I have spent now equal parts of my life in the Midwest and in the South. This year is my 19-year anniversary of living in Tennessee. And I always say that I was not born here, but I will probably die and be buried here. (laughs) One of the things that I love about both of those questions is just being able to have a garden in my yard and do my small part and just grow some good tomatoes and <laughs> try to try to grow more better tomatoes than my neighbor. So. <laughs> well, if you ever figure that out, let me know because I'm still struggling with it. Yeah, I'm sure will. <laughs> well, Margot Price, thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Margot Price. Make sure to visit margoprice.net to listen to her music, watch videos, keep up with tour dates, and more. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. Come back on August 23rd for my conversation with Rhiannon Giddens.